that feeling of comfort and warmth from a favourite hand-knitted jumper. Each interlinked stitch enveloped us with handmade love and utilised one of the world's most used natural fibres. Wool, a naturally occurring animal fibre, has many benefits from thermal insulation to resistance to wrinkling, bacteria, mould and mildew. It's naturally anti-static and flame resistant and is a renewable, 100% biodegradable, sustainable fibre. It has the ability to breathe, absorbing large quantities of moisture, vapour, moving it away from the body to evaporate, which is why it was and still is used in kitting out numerous polar explorers. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch, sewing and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that is the art of the needle. My name's Kathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. Ancient harvesting of wool must have been a difficult and time-consuming occupation. It didn't include shears. These were a Roman Iron Age invention. It was plucked by hand using bronze combs. Wool could come from camels, goats, yaks and of course sheep. Sheep were considered easy care as they could thrive on rocky land, they could be milked or used for meat and with the skin uh, which could be used to make parchment. The domestication of sheep is thought to have occurred somewhere between 9000 and 7000 BC with selective breeding for woolly wool rather than hairy wool, thought to have begun around 6000 BC. Animal fibres such as wool and silk are great insulators, far better than the bast or plant fibres of flax or hemp, and both are far more accepting of dyes than their plant-based counterparts. Wool, like flax or cotton, was spun and used to weave cloth, However, Elizabeth Wayland Barber, in her book Women's Work, The First 20,000 Years, suggests that the use of coloured threads signalled the ability to send visual social messages via cloth and clothing. Messages such as, I'm married, or I'm the leader, talk to me, or even, I belong to this group. We do much the same thing now by wearing black for mourning, or wearing unified sporting outfits, or even different patterned and coloured tartans to denote Scottish clan affiliation. We're sending messages without even making a sound, which I believe is an extremely sophisticated human accomplishment. The Vikings, that great seafaring people, prized wool as much as their life at sea and their strikingly beautiful longships. Fearsome warriors they may have been, but they couldn't have set sail and achieved their notoriety without wool, 
the raw material for their clothes, blankets, and even the sails and caulking that ha uh, harness the sea-driven forays for new lands and riches. A 9th century Viking ship called the Gokstand ship was found by two boys in 1879 on a farm in a quiet coastal region 100 kilometres south of Oslo in Norway. According to legend, the King's Mound, where the ship was buried, supposedly contained treasure. Now, what part of this legend wouldn't appeal to two inquisitive teenage boys? What they began to uncover, though, while digging through the still-frozen ground was breathtaking. Timber felled to build the Gokstad ship has been scientifically dated to 890 AD, right at the height of Norse expansion into Dublin, Ireland and York in England during the reign of King Harold Fairhair. Now the type of silver and gold treasure those boys were hoping to find didn't eventuate, but there was treasure of a different sort. Having spent 10 to 15 years at sea, the Gokstad ship was hauled ashore to become a lavish burial ship for a tall, powerfully built chieftain who died a brutal, violent death. This enormous Viking longship, named as one of the most beautiful ever built, contained the treasure I'm looking for. Snippets of white and red, double thickness cloth, the eerie remains of a woolen sailcloth sewn together in red and white stripes. Now, while there are no intact uh, Viking sails in existence, only fragments, the Bayeux tapestry dating from the time of Viking raid decline would appear to depict design images of Viking longboats and their sails from knowledge, either written or word of mouth. I just find that totally fascinating. Old Norse sagas mention the use of other colours and patterns as well, because the Vikings had a love of strong colour, and this probably helped signify their allegiance to a particular king or lord, a custom much used by many cultures at this time. The sails would have been treated with fat to make them water repellent, and the dyes used could easily have been mixed into that before being applied to the cloth. The powerful and flexible construction of the ship was also made waterproof by a corking of twisted lamb's wool or cow hair saturated with pine tar and fitted into grooves between the clinched boards. So wool became a Viking longboat's seashawl, enveloping it with a waterproofing material, ensuring the men and women were kept warm during those hazardous sea voyages as well as enabling wind-fueled movement. Wadmole, an old Norse word meaning cloth measure, is a coarse, dense, usually undyed wool fabric woven throughout Iceland, Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Greenland and the Orkney, Faroe and Shetland Islands from the Middle Ages into the 18th century. Elizabeth Wayland Barber also suggests that Changes occurred in dress because of the use of coloured thread, which led to the borrowing of a European linen garment, the tunic or chemise, after the introduction of wool.
but why then? Because the tunic or chemise was made of the soft white plant fibres of linen, hemp, nettle and later cotton, which were not only more comfortable against the skin, but they were more easily laundered. Whereas we all know, wool directly against the skin can be just a tad prickly and scratchy. The chemise provided that necessary barrier between the skin and the woolen outer garment. So now we have layered garments in this, and this is where those precious time-consuming coloured threads come into play. They were used to decorate those often seen outer uh, layers of woolen clothing, either by being incorporated into the actual weave, or separately by making a brightly woven sash or other form of embellishment. This then means that the average weaver had to be competent not only in working with flax or other plant-based fibres, but also with wool to keep her family clothed. These each required very different methods of handling. And what did she get from all this effort? A more diverse, comfortable wardrobe of clothing for her family to wear. Mind you, it must have taken a great deal of time to achieve. Again from the same book, Elizabeth Wayland Barber cites evidence of this layering technique, technique from the burial of a chieftain around 2500 BC, laid to rest wearing a white undergarment adorned with red tassels overlaid with a black and yellow wool wrap. By the Middle Ages, wool was by far the most common textile used in clothing. It's not as strong as some plant fibres, but it's resilient, takes dye exceedingly well, and as a natural hair fibre, was perfect for felting. Generally, at this time, there were only two types of woolen cloth, worsted or woolen. Worsted yarn was spun from longer, thicker fibres of more or less equal lengths, producing a sturdy yet lightweight cloth. Woolen yarn used the shorter, curlier, finer fibres producing a softer, hairier cloth not as strong as worsted and while any cloth woven from it required further processing, the end product was very strong, very fine and a much sought after luxury item. The wool trade was robust during the Middle Ages with fine wool being acquired by towns around Flanders and Tuscany, including Florence. The fine wool cloth produced by these areas were traded throughout Europe. I'm going to take a moment here to talk briefly about the De Medici family, well known throughout Renaissance Italy during the 15th century, who go on to become the ruling house of Florence during the 16th and 17th centuries. Known for their patronage of the arts, they were also influences in politics and were instrumental in the intellectual and cultural flowering that became known as the Renaissance. They helped bring peace and stability to the area, allowing artists and writers to develop and flourish. So how could, I, how could they do this? Because of wool. They moved to Florence prospered in their new home and made their wealth through trading wool, becoming so prosperous and powerful 
they were able to diversify into other business interests, including the Medici Bank. Catherine, the only child of Lorenzo de Medici and Madeleine de la Tour de Avignon, a Bourbon countess, married Prince Henry, Duke de Orleans of France in early 1533. They were both just 14, eventually becoming Queen of France upon the death of Henry's elder brother in 1536. She was to become regent and mother to three kings of France. According to legend, Catherine had the most beautiful hands and dedicated herself to teaching the noble dames at the French court how to make the elegant embroidery which was very on vogue in Venice and other major Italian cities, eventually becoming known for her counted thread technique which is usually worked on cream coloured Italian even weave linen. Pierre de Bourdie, Abbey de Brontemont, a French court observer, wrote of Catherine, She energetically spent her evenings after dinner working on her silken embroideries, at which she was as perfect as it was possible to be. Catherine's marriage to Henry was considered a prize catch indeed for her, because although she was from a wealthy family, she was of relatively low birth. So I posed the question, was the de Medici wealth from the trade of wool the impetus for the match leading to the marriage with a future King of France? Now on to something completely different. Casia St. Clair writes about her, about the fascinating use of wool for polar exploration in her book, The Golden Thread, How Fabric Changed History. Polar exploration relied on the natural fibres of wool, cotton, silk and fur, with wool being used for underwear, mittens, socks, vests and jumpers, helping to trap multiple insulating layers of air. One thing Scott and Shackleton learnt on the Discovery Expedition of 1901-1904 was to allow the free evaporation of moisture from the body. If fibres were allowed to collect and absorb moisture, Clothing became heavy and wet when frozen. Wool was the perfect fibre to use, allowing this much-needed breathability. Even up to 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary was still layering woollen underwear, shirts and Shetland wool pullovers. However, there was a move towards synthetic outdoor clothing during the 1990s. Climbers now, though, have a renewed belief of the benefits of natural fibres with a New Zealand firm specialising in merino wool base layers recommended on several Everest kit-out lists. This is just one of the fascinating topics covered in, the, in far more uh, detail in Kazia's book, The Golden Thread, How Fabric Changed History. It's an entertaining and thought-provoking uh, book. I'm including this apt insight from the English explorer of Antarctica, Apsley Cherry Garrard. It comes from the introduction to his memoir, The Worst Journey in the World, written in 1922. He writes, Polar, ex 
exploration is at once the cleanest and most isolated way of having a bad time which has been devised. It is the only form of adventure in which you put on your clothes at Michaelmas and keep them on until Christmas and, save for a layer of the natural grease of the body, find them as clean as though they were new. It is more lonely than London, more secluded than any monastery, and the post comes but once a year. As men will compare the hardships of France, Palestine or Mesopotamia, so it would be interesting to contrast the rival claims of the Antarctic as a medium of discomfort. A member of Campbell's party tells me that the trenches at Ypres were a comparative picnic. But until someone can evolve a standard of endurance, I am unable to see how it can be done. Take it all in all, I do not believe anybody on earth has a worse time than an emperor penguin. I'm with absolute Cherry Garrett, 100%. Now let's move on to a new arena for the use of fibre and thread, one I haven't touched on, but one that comes into this preview because of its importance in both time and art. And that's the world of tapestry. I'm quoting directly from Lady Marion Alford in her much admired work, first published in 1886, Needlework as Art, she writes. The woman of the house has always been strong to fulfil her part in a civilising influence with the implement which custom has awarded to her. Every man in the ancient East began his life under the tent or in the palace adorned by the hands of his mother and her maidens, and his home was made beautiful by his wife and his sisters and their slaves. There, as in medieval homes, lessons of morality and religion and the love and fame of noble deeds were taught by the painting of the needle to the minds of the young men who would have scorned more direct teaching. And the children felt the influence as the women wove what the bards sang. What better way to represent those much admired ideals than through textile hangings or tapestries? And we're still doing this today through the rapid growth and rekindled interest in textile and fibre art uh, based art and crafts with a narrative. They tell the story or make the point the artist wishes to express. Whether from ancient Egypt or medieval England, the display of richly decorated textiles was a means of showing wealth as well as offering a sense of comfort and luxury. Textiles like art could become a narrative, but they also assumed other functions as well that pure art could not. Fragments of tapestry have been found in ancient Egypt and the art of tapestry weaving was practised by the Copts, the Egyptian Christians from the 3rd century. These tapestries became a bridge between ancient world art and the art of the Middle Ages in Europe. With the demise of mummification after the 4th century CE, hangings and tapestries were sometimes used as shrouds, 
but they were also used to decorate churches, monasteries, castles and affluent homes. Bands of tapestry trimming in wool or silk were still often woven into tunics or cloaks and sometimes decorated with precious gold or silver threads and they would have looked amazing. Tapestries were also designed for bed hangings and coverings using highly stylized designs. Remember, this was a time before central heating and those castles and churches would have been drafty and cold. I want to touch on just one tapestry here as it's so well known as being a tapestry when in fact it's not. The Bayeux Tapestry is the narrative of the Norman conquest of England in 1066. Yet it's incorrectly termed a tapestry. Technically, it's an embroidery. But it highlights the function of the art of the narrative by applying a design onto fabric using thread and embroidery uh, techniques to depict that story. The Bayeux Tapestry was made in Norman England by highly skilled Anglo-Saxon embroiderers. At this point in history, embroidery was considered a worthy occupation for women of rank and there's a belief that these women may have been trained to stitch this embroidery. It was worked on a base, of ground, a base ground of linen using worsted wool threads in eight colours with linen threads used sporadically throughout the work as well. The embroidery measures 231 feet or 70 metres in length and 19 and a half inches or 49 and a half centimetres wide and incorporates more than 70 scenes representing the Norman Conquest. There's power in the narrative those stitches portray because we're able to visualise history worked from not long after 1066 from the ease of our own time but portrayed by the people who knew or had a record of what happened and who wanted that story to be told. To think this work has survived is simply breathtaking. I can't wait to explore the Bayeux Tapestry further, to, to learn more about the women who stitched it, who designed it and where it was used. Stay tuned. It has a fascinating history. I could keep going and going, but I'll end here with a couple of snippets I picked up during this journey into wool. Have you heard of something called the wool sack? I know what a wool sack is, but the wool sack was news to me. It's where the Lord Speaker of the House of Lords sits and resembles a large square cushion covered in red cloth. It was restuffed in 1938 using a blend of wool from Britain and other wool producing nations of the Commonwealth. Thought to have been introduced in the 14th century, it's said to reflect the economic importance of the wool trade in England. Now, I think that's pretty cool to think there's a tradition of someone sitting on a woolen cushion in the British House of Lords since the 14th century. And hopefully now it includes just a tad of Australian wool. And finally, philosopher's wool, a compound made by alchemists from zinc which formed white full, woolly tufts when burned. It's used in pigment for paints, 
ointments, sunscreens, rubber manufacture and photocopying products. It's an interesting term, philosopher's wool, has absolutely nothing to do with wool, but I think language is fascinating. Again, thank you so much for listening. Honestly, these ex expeditions into such seemingly simple areas reveal such diversity of history and art. Stay with me, as next fortnight I'll present Mermaid Silk, a yarn highly sought after in ancient times and still being made today. Okay, bye for now.